0: Be very clear on what your message is. Be very clear on what niche you want to focus on. Be very clear on what your value proposition is. Tools change. I and mean, if it was blogging yesterday, it's YouTube the day before, TikTok tomorrow, Instamogash.
1: And who knows what's next? Yeah. And
0: who knows next, right? So as long as you get your messaging right, then tools just follow. And you, of course, need to be where your audience is.
1: The most inspiring stories from today's most successful mortgage brokers. Join your host Scott Peckford on I Love Mortgage Brokering. Hey, Broker Nation! Scott Peckford here today. The show I have Shashank Shakar. He's the founder of Insta Mortgage, one of the fastest-growing mortgage companies in America. Last year's personal production was around three hundred million. His company did one point two billion, and he just has a cool name. Honestly, I was like, man, I wish I had a cool name like that. He came to Canada in two thousand eight, two thousand nine, and worked for a mortgage company. He got laid off because stopped and then funded seven mortgages in his first year in the business and last year they did 1.2 billion that is an incredible feat absolutely love his story and very smart guy very humble a couple things that we talk about that i found super interesting was the importance of focusing on the message not the tools he talks about how he used blogging as a huge tool for building his business and reputation Blogging was obviously bigger than it is now, but then we transition into talking about the more modern platforms, TikTok, Instagram, we get into some of that. We talk about how he got a media attention when he started out. Now he gets lots of media attention, gets asked to quote into papers and the news, and he talks about how he got that. And then something that I thought was really interesting was he talked about how There's been a lot of investment and time on the point of sale. So when a mortgage client wants to interact with the broker for the first time, the application, the document collection. But the part that hasn't really been focused on is day two to day 30. So once you get the app, like what happens? so we've spent a lot of energy on the front end to make it look good. But then on the back end, everything's still pretty outdated and there's not a lot of great technology working behind the scenes. I think that he's absolutely right. That is the next area that will be seeing massive improvements in overhauling. And we touched on AI. He's got digital human AI that interacts with clients and it sounds pretty cool. So very innovative fellow. I think you're gonna enjoy this conversation. And before I jump into that, I wanna give a shout out to our title sponsor, FinMo. FinMo's a Canadian mortgage application, document collection submission platform designed specifically for Canadians. Very easy to use for borrowers. And it's got some really cool features, smart docs. You know, When the client's filling with the app, it knows what documents that they need. It's got smart submission notes. So it knows when you go to submit, pulls the key data from the application, puts in the notes for the lender to make it easy make it easy for the lender, they'll make it easy for you. And finally, it's connected to Lender Spotlight, which means you can search all rates and guidelines. Check them out at finmo.ca and ask them to do a demo for you. They'll give you a test drive, show you how it all works. In the Ask the Expert segment today, I have Ben McCabe from Bloom Finance on the patterns of reverse mortgages. Check out this conversation with Shashank and we'll chat soon. Hey, Shawshank, welcome to the podcast. Thanks, Scott. Thanks for having me. So, hey, I understand you have your own podcast. You've got one of the fastest growing mortgage companies in America. You're doing a lot of cool things with technology and growth. So I'm excited to have you come chat with me. If someone doesn't know who you are, can you tell me a little bit about yourself and how you got into the mortgage business?
0: Yeah, sure. I'm the founder and CEO of Insta Mortgage. As you mentioned, it is one of the fastest growing mortgage companies in America, both North and South Really, there are two things to Insta Mortgage. One is we're driven by tech. We are headquartered here in Silicon Valley in San Jose. So there's a lot of tech element We built. For example, the first digital human in the mortgage space in the world. Then there are tons of other automations that we're working on. But on the other side, we are also very driven and committed to minority home ownership. A lot of things that we do here at Insta is driven by diversity and inclusion. And we can probably talk more about that. Really what got me into the mortgage space, Scott, is I was a year and a half in the country in 2008. I had graduated from business school in India. Went to work for GE Money, then went to work for a startup, that got me transferred here to Silicon Valley. And then it was 2007 that I moved to the U.S. And then 2008 happened, and we all know what happened in 2008. Right.
1: So I, I used to do mortgages with GE Money in Canada. Wow. They were here, and they nice. had these little like plastic people that had like a computer, like yeah. a little suit and the sunglasses. Remember those? Yes, we did. Yeah, yeah I had the one on my desk. I was like, this is a cool mortgage guy. And uh, unfortunately, so GE money, though, they didn't survive the, yeah. uh, the crash. I didn't there. cause it. I had left it. Yeah, you, it. yeah sure, sure, <laughs> sure. Yeah, you came in. Just to
0: clarify to the audience.
1: <laughs> you didn't cause that crash of GE money. You know what's interesting about the GE money story is that like they had a lot of money. And so having money does not equal guaranteed success, Right. As I'm sure you know you're a very successful business person, but okay, so you, you went from there. Where did you go from there after that?
0: Yeah, so when I came to the US, I think it was pretty well set. We had this small startup, I wasn't the owner or founder, but we had the funding from ING's VC firm, and everything was kind of nice. And then Almost immediately after I came to the U.S., I could start seeing the crack in the mortgage market, and the real estate market. And lo and behold, 12 months later, the company shut down. I was with $1,900 saving, practically knew no one in the entire country. And I was a year and a half in the country. And for all my stupidity, I thought I should start a mortgage business. That's what I like.
1: (laughs) In a time when it was crazy. i got the business in 2006. Okay. So what was the first sort of iteration that you took after that? That $900 savings and where did you go?
0: Yeah, so I was running a mortgage company before that. It wasn't exactly a mortgage company, but we had mortgage companies clients. So I had studied a lot for like how do mortgage companies work. So surprisingly, I knew the entire guidelines. I knew how to run ops. I knew all of that stuff. And for some reason, I thought that knowing all of that will give me a head start in a business like mortgages, only to realize a couple months later that I had no clue how to get clients. As you mentioned, it was in mm-hmm. 2008. So of course I yeah. was buying or refinancing, but also I knew all of three people in the entire country. And those were the ex coworkers who got fired or because the company shut yeah, down.
1: No, yeah, right.
0: <laughs> so not the ideal place. But one thing that, that taught me is when people come to me saying, hey, I want to be an entrepreneur. I want to start something. That's one of the first questions that I ask them is because I tell them, hey, I'm sure you have great skills. I'm sure you're talented. You know what you're doing. But do you know, how would you get your first 10 clients or your first 100 clients? Because that's more important than anything else. And that's what I realized. And that's probably was my first iteration is that the first 12 months, I really struggled. I tried to do business like any other loan officer was doing, which is going to real estate events, asking for business, networking, etc, etc. And none of that was working. I'm not really an extrovert when it comes to just walking to somebody and saying, hey, I'm a loan officer. Want to give me some business? I'm the same way. I
1: I would rather have one meaningful conversation than 50 superficial, shake hands, kiss babies. So in that first 12 months, what did you do for mortgages? I'm curious. I did seven loans in the first 12 months. Uh, So I was doing half a loan
0: a month. I got lucky the company that shut down that I was part of, there were two or three loans in the pipeline still. So three of them came from there. Yeah, because they, I mean, of course, the owner said that that's okay, take it. And in fact, it was good for them because they were already in the process. And I was like, hey, can I just take it over? And they were totally fine with that. And then I think one person was my wife's coworker. I'm trying to think where did the other two or three came from, maybe from someone they know. The, the reason
1: I like to share that is just to compare that to where you are today and the path. So when did the switch flip and do you remember, was there a moment? Was there a, okay, I think I can get this. I'm curious what happened for you to go from like, I don't know where to get loans to obviously you figured that out. So when would first start to happen?
0: Yes, I did, but I did it in a very different way than practically any loan officer was doing in 2009. So after struggling for first 12 months, as I said, doing seven loans, I realized that the traditional way of client acquisition will not work for me. And so I kind of went back to my marketing 101, which is what I majored in in my business school. And I started looking at where are my customers? Like, where are they hanging out? What is it that they are consuming in terms of knowledge? I mean, what are the platforms they are using? And one of the things that was kind of getting obvious in 2009, especially sitting here in kind of a tech-savvy place like Silicon Valley, was that a lot of people were going to blogs to read content. They were getting away from newspapers. They were getting away from television. And I, for some reason, thought at that point of time that, look, either I'll do a business in a way where the business comes to me, I never have to go to the business, or I just won't do this at all. I'll just go back to corporate America or do something. Uh-huh. And that's kind of a challenge or a goal that I gave myself. And the only way to kind of build a business where you want the business to come to you is by way of building expertise, by way of building credibility, by way of building reputation. Uh-huh. I remember reading, um, I think it's was Jeffrey Gitmer's book, The Sales Bible. It said, if you want to be considered an expert, you should write and you should speak. Of course, the social media and all the angle wasn't there in 2008-9 that much. But and I took that too hard and said, "Okay, let's do that. If that's what makes me credible, shows my expertise, I'll start blogging." And so, two thousand nine, I think April May is when I started blogging. And I used to blog on my own platform, my own blog site. And then there was a website called Active Rain at that time, which was very popular uh, within the real estate community.
1: And I remember I blogged for like. Was that a real estate investment blog? Was that or my? No, it was. I'm it
0: was. I mean, real estate agents will write blogs on that. Active Rain used to be very popular at that point in time. I think it was bought and then kind of just died. But my logic was that, look, I don't have audience on my blog. So I want to go where the audience already is, which was ActiveRain, while I build my own platform simultaneously. And that was the logic behind it is that you want to approach both the platforms at the same time. And I wrote two blog posts because I was writing one for ActiveRain and one for mortgageblog.com, which is my platform. For six months straight, Scott, every single week, two blog posts, for six months straight, before I got my first call, somebody said, oh, I saw your blog on the web and I have some question or something. So the first indication that somebody was reading this happened after six months of writing it twice every week. Most of the time, I, in fact, ended up kind of teaching some of these classes at real estate boards. And most of the time, they will come back and say, oh, I tried it for a month. It did not work. Or I tried it for two months and did not work. So when you said, was there a switch that flipped? No, because it wasn't overnight. It took six months. And even then, it's not as if suddenly the leads have started flowing or something. It just gave me a sense that there is someone out there who's reading this thing that I'm writing. That's all it was. And then a couple of weeks later, I think someone from Young News called saying they were doing a story on mortgages and they found my blog on the web. And so they wanted to quote me, and he really liked what I had to quote. So he said, Let me refer you to other editors at Yahoo News who might have mortgage or real estate stories. What I'm trying to say is, and then of course, even then again, it was never a question. I think it almost took three years before I could say that all of these things that I was doing around blogging and speaking and everything else kind of hit a tipping point where I was like, okay, now I'm comfortable with the amount of leads that I'm getting, but there was no.
1: It wasn't one thing. I didn't think you'd say it was one thing. I asked the question as a focusing exercise, yeah. but I wasn't expecting to be like, oh, I just discovered you know, <laughs> the secret oh, sauce. Day. It's always work. So that's very interesting. So a couple of questions on that. So did you have the exact same article on both platforms or was it two different articles? I was studying a lot around
0: SEO and uh, how do you search engine optimize and a lot of stuff. And Google, of course, did not like duplicate content on two platforms. So that's not something I was doing. I was writing unique content for both the platforms. And just for the audience here, just to clarify, it's not as if I have been a writer before. And some of my earliest writing are extremely cringy. I mean, even I would hate to go back and read it. It's just that, I mean, you have to get yourself out of the comfort zone and do whatever needs to be done, kind of a mindset. Not so much because I thought I was a good writer, because I know I was not. In fact, the first book that I wrote... I never read it and I never asked anyone to read it is because I know how bad it was. So I was like, okay. So for me, it was more a question of what builds credibility in a market where there is no differentiation? How do you change really a commodity into a brand? And that's the play that I was working on is that a brand is where you will come and pay whatever they ask you to and you will work with them. On commodity, you will shop them everywhere and only work with the ones where they have been the business for a very long period of time. And that's, right. that's exactly what I was trying to change.
1: Right. Okay. I won't spend too much more time on this. I just find this fascinating. So, okay, first year you did seven mortgages. You realized okay, blogging was a thing. Nowadays mm-hmm. the platforms change. So this is not prescriptive. What I see is you recognized I've got to find another way. It could be TikTok today, it could be Instagram, it could be other, you know, mediums, but it was that commitment to the long-term creation of that content. You were playing the long game, you're differentiating yourself, and then you know, a couple of good breaks, you get mentioned few doors get opened. So at the end of that second year, how many mortgages did you do? I'm just curious when the hockey stick started to go up.
0: Yeah, and first to just kind of close the loop on that, I actually wrote an article for Housing Wire saying, focus on the message, not the tools, which is exactly what you're saying. Yeah. is that be very clear on what your message is. Be very clear on what niche you want to focus on. Be very clear on what your value proposition is. Tools change. I mean, if it was blogging yesterday, it's YouTube the day before, TikTok tomorrow, Instamogish.
1: And who knows what's next? Yeah. And
0: who knows next, right? So as long as you get your messaging right, then tools just follow. And you, of course, need to be where your audience is. But I think I made from what I remember 72000 dollars That will translate into 24, 25 loans, maybe roughly is what you're talking about. I think And then what about year off. three? Yeah. So first year I think I did seven million from those, no, sorry, seven loans was three and a half millions. From there I went to eight to twelve to twenty two. To year four when it really clicked when i did 62 million dollars and i think for the first time i made the top 200 or top three hundred. and that's when
1: mortgages were smaller too like this yes, was of course they were if you take that same loan count today that number is bigger and then how long to break 100 million
0: the year after that so i grew every single year since then and i think three years later i was top 15 in the country on the loan officer list two years later i was one of the top four or five brokers in the co- which is a separate rank between brokers and loan officers Right. Uh, in the US, but yeah, the numbers, I think there was only one year, if I remember, out of all these years that the number actually went down. Last year, for example, I closed close to $350 million. That's in personal production. We are not talking in InstaMogage here, of course, as a company. So yeah, the numbers, I think what happens is that especially if you build a brand around expertise, around customer service, around the fact that this person knows what he is talking about. And I intentionally focused on first-time home buyers is because they are the ones who are looking for education because Mm -hmm. if you want to build a platform, like you need to have a messaging and your audience fit. If your messaging is all about real estate investing, for example, you can be going after first-time home buyers. It just makes no sense to do that. For me, education as a platform made sense is because that's what first-time home buyers were looking for. And so right. for me, I had that messaging audience fed. And that's why I think it just started to kind of just kept getting better year after year when you have more people now you have funded, you've done a great job on database management. They keep coming back. They refer you. First seven people that I closed in the first year, each one of them are worth more than quarter million dollars for me is because of all the referrals that have come from them and they have come back to me. Because most people, are, when they talk about database management, they think that you need to have a big database to manage it. But in my case, I had seven people, so to say, in my database, and I was still making use of it to get future business out of it.
1: Right, right. Okay, you've gotten up so many other questions in my mind from what you <laughs> just said. So when did you transition out of daily blogging, and what was the next you know, tool that you started to work on?
0: Yeah, so after writing, I started working on speaking as a tool. And so that's something that, again... But I was using a speaking more, not from a direct to consumer kind of platform, but a speaking as a way to get real estate agents to refer me business. Okay. So again, as I said before, I do not want to go into networking events and ask for business. I really wanted to provide value to them so that they will come and refer me business on their own. I really didn't have to ask for much. And I made a speaking that thing where everything that I was learning in terms of blogging or video creation or everything else that I was doing was practically new for the entire industry back in 2010, I would say. Mm-hmm. Yeah. People know about it. So I didn't just do it for myself. I took all the knowledge and everything that I was learning through doing all of that. And then it started going to small real estate marketing events. From there, they will invite me to, say, a real estate brokerage. From there, a lot of real estate boards invited me to go and talk to them or to their members. So. Again, even that probably took a year or two because you were first talking to 10 people in a room, then you were talking to 30 people in a room, then 50 or 100. And then I started doing my own events. When I had enough realtors in my database, I wasn't just going to their office and their boards. I was hosting my own event and bringing local real estate agents and top producers and myself, of course, And we would have 100, 125 real estate agents in the room. So a lot of people ask this question, is that how do you get business from real estate agents? Because they always have somebody else that they might be working with, especially the good ones. And it's always about providing value. I went from zero real estate agents in my database in 2009 to over 600 three years later. And I'm not saying copying, pasting somebody's email into my CRM. I'm talking people who know me, people who have Mm -hmm. seen me, people who have talked to me. So these are your warm real estate agents connections, so to say. And for me, that was a big deal. So going from writing to adding speaking, while simultaneously building on my media presence, trying to go out and get coded in multiple platforms. So those were the three things that I was working on in terms of building the brand and getting client acquisition.
1: What is something about getting media or working with the media that people don't know or you know, obviously you've done a bunch of stuff with the media and they've helped build your brand, but what's something people don't know about working with the media?
0: Uh, that there are platforms where actually there are reporters who are posting their request to ask for quotes. There is a company called Quoted, Q-W-O-T-E-D that I've used for a very long period of time. People think that reporters always have enough guests or enough people that they can talk to and get quotes from. You'll be surprised how many times I have been interviewed where there was a last second cancellation. They have a deadline going into 11 a.m. Somebody they wanted to interview and that person was not available. They need to scramble and find somebody else to get a quote from. So I have always prioritized media requests whenever it comes in. That's the first thing. I'm in Pacific time zone here in California, but somebody wants to talk at 8 a.m. Eastern, and said, that's fine. I mean, if your deadline is nine, you need someone dependable. You do that to them one time and they'll come back to you every time to get your code whenever they have a story like that. Right. So that's one thing is that you need to know that there are companies there where they post a media request. There's is One, I'm forgetting about the other, which is HARO, H-A-R-O, help a reporter out. That's what- I've do. heard of that one
1: before, yeah.
0: It's a free email service, really. They actually email you surprisingly two times a day and saying, hey, these are the industries where reporters are looking for a code. And you may not be quoted. you might have to send 20 quotes before you're quoted once or twice but that's what you're looking for it's not that initially in my early say first few years every quote that i would send they would quote me that number has of course gone up over the recent past but that's how you get into their database that's when they don't have anyone else they will come to you and say do you have five minutes but you really need to prioritize that. They are always under the gun in terms of the deadline to deliver. And so if they say, are you available in the next 15 minutes? And if you're not, then they move on to somebody else. So, right. so, so that's important.
1: The reality is, is they have a problem. Like, yes. sometimes they have to write about multiple industries. And, yeah. and so they're not going to have necessarily their key people in those different industries. And so if you can be that person, yes. talk about this, what about I've done in the past, you know, I don't do mortgages, personal production anymore because I'm focused on growing the company. But I have found that if you can speak in sound bites, it makes it better. Talk to me about that. How do you come up with something that's not so long that it's like, okay, is that something you intentionally do as I'm just curious?
0: Again, depends on the medium you're using. If you get a 45 minutes an hour keynote, then of course you have to speak for 45 minutes to an hour of keynote. If you're doing a two minutes video, then you need to be focused on doing the two minutes video. You can solve the same problem. Say if someone were to ask me, how do you build a brand as a loan officer in mortgage business? I mean, I can answer that in two minutes. I can answer it in two hours. Right. really depends on how deep I want to go with that. And that's where I think the marketing 101 that I keep coming back to is that understand the audience and understand the platform. You can't go on TikTok and then have a 10 minutes video. That's not how you do it. But you can do a webinar if you really want to teach somebody, a first-time home buyer, walk that person a step by a step on how to buy your first home. <laughs> webinar could be a much better platform. And that's why I've used... Radio shows, TV shows, webinars, seminars, blogging, I mean, practically every single online and offline platform is because certain messaging and certain audience needs different kind of platforms. And that's important because first time home buyers may not be interested in sound bites. I mean, they're not looking to retweet you on Twitter. That's not what their need is. They actually want to understand every step of the way how to buy their first home. And but if you're trying to answer something quickly, and this is something they don't have too much time, then you need to stick with sound bites. So yeah, I don't think there's an answer to that question directly. It really depends on who is your audience and what's your platform. And what
1: the platform is. Yeah, it always comes back to you have got to know Mm -hmm. your message, but you've got to match the tool. So one of the questions you'd said that you did 350 million in personal origination. Is it still a lot of first time buyers? Or has your book, a business evolved or changed over time?
0: It has. So a lot of people who bought the home during that time period have now moved on to buying their second home. They have also moved on to buying investment properties. So what used to be almost 80, 90% of my purchase business used to be first-time home buyers, is probably down to 50%. The other 50, maybe even slightly higher. The other half of it is people who are buying bigger homes or people who are buying investment properties. And that's one of the reasons Why we got licensed from two estates in about three, four years back to 26 states now is because a lot of people from California or Bay Area, where I live, were moving out to other parts of the country. And so it gave us that advantage of staying with that client wherever they went. Mm -hmm. Otherwise, they would go somewhere else and then they would just use another lender and keep doing that. So that mix has definitely changed. In fact, that's one of the things I tell people when figuring out a niche is because a lot of people are worried that... If you want to show that you're an expert at something like first-time home buyers, for example, they think that they will lose on all other business because people will think, oh, they're good with first-time home buyers, and they're probably horrible with everything else. One, people don't think that. Two, over a period of time, that changes anyway. And three, it's better to play the blue ocean strategy where you are champion in one thing versus saying, I'm okay with everything that you possibly need. Uh-huh. People don't really see you as an expert for anything at all. And that's what you can see in my business as well. Even though I harped on first-time homebuyer for a long period of time, I automatically got more business through the years is because those customers came back to me asking for investment property and second homes and bigger homes.
1: Okay, so tell me about, you had touched on something, a digital assistant or AI that mm-hmm. you guys are using. Can you tell me about that? Because I think you, in 2008, when you're looking at blogging in 2009, that was the thing. Yes. You seem to have a sense of like where things are going. And so this is another one of those things that we're going to look back and go, of course, we're going to use AI in the mortgage business. Like, duh. So tell me about that. What are you guys doing there? And like, yeah, I'm interested in that.
0: Yeah. Mortgage is a space where you need to be ahead. It takes a lot of time to implement something. It's not an overnight thing. And if you are behind, then by the time you catch up, there are other players that are ahead of you. And it's just like iPhone. You're can building a Samsung. It'll take you years to catch up because by the time you're building version 1.0, I mean, iPhone is on version 3.0 and it becomes very hard to catch up when it comes to technology. The digital human concept, it's a conversational AI. So it's a conversational artificial intelligence, which is exactly the same thing which is Siri and Alexa is. But Siri and Alexa is an audio only format. You don't see like Siri in a human format, for example, because of the limitations and everything else. I saw that digital human is the nexus space. So there were chatbots before, as you know, there were forms before chatbots were so yeah. just lead forms. Lead forms evolved into chatbots, which were more live, so to say, which evolved into conversational AI like Siri and Alexa. And the way I see it is that the next stage of that evolution are digital humans. And it was being used in a couple of industries, especially the health industry, especially around COVID. A lot of digital humans were employed to answer questions and everything. And I saw that as a unique opportunity for mortgages because the digital human that we created called Rachel could answer 100 most frequently asked questions, could help you get, say, a rate code, could get you connected with team members, and we built all of that intelligence. But the difference between Siri Alexa and Rachel, for example, is that it's more sticky. As a human, we like things that look more like human, yeah. that looks more like human, behaves more like human. And we actually feel that being the first in the digital human space gives us a huge amount of unfair advantage going into a metaverse space, because all metaverse really is, is a 3D version of digital human. It interacts in a real life situation within a metaverse, and that's something that as and when we feel that there is a real opportunity there, it's too early for a mortgage business there, but as and when it is, we'll try to be one of the first, if not the first to play in that space. So- um, You already have it and- built. So, okay,
1: is it functioning now? Is it like something that it, it, customers is- are interacting with? Yeah.
0: So the audience can go to instamortgage.com. It is on homepage. It works better on desktop, just so you're on that mobile right now. That's the very new technology. So we're still trying to figure out a few things there.
1: Right. That's okay. You're, when you're innovating, you're always on the bleeding edge of yes. you know, what's possible. And so, okay, one other question on this. I love this idea of the digital human. Like how have customers, like are you getting a lot of interactions? So like on a daily basis, are people actually coming in and asking you questions? Or is it, you know, one of these tools that's not, like I'm curious about that.
0: No, yeah, very interactive. The feedback that we've gotten for Rachel has been extremely encouraging, even though it's very limited in terms of functional utility, we are actually working on version 2.0, which we should make live in probably next four weeks, where we will launch a digital human powered pre-qualification in three minutes. So we are building those kinds of capability within Rachel to deliver some of those things, basically making it more functional. We are building on API integration with Fannie and Freddie to be able to give conforming loan balances with different counties. So the reason why Siri and Alexa became so popular is because they could help solve more problems. That's what we are trying to do with Rachel is that once Rachel is able to solve more problems, there will be more adoption of it. And once you have more adoption, people like the UI and the UX of it already, they love it actually. But we are trying to build more functional utility into Rachel that way there could be more adoption for that.
1: How did you come up with the name Rachel?
0: Uh, I had there's there was no real reason. Okay, for I, thought,
1: I was just curious if there was like a, your best under processor was Rachel. Yeah, or...
0: my executive assistant's name is Rachel. Sometimes people confuse which one is human, which one is digital. Oh, that's hilarious, but, actually.
1: <laughs> but
0: uh, yeah, sometimes they're like, "Which Rachel am I talking to?" It's like, okay,
1: <laughs> which who's yeah. talking to me here? Okay, and then so what are the, some of the other things that in the last twelve months that you've implemented or that you guys are doing at InstaMortgage that are unique or that changes you made.
0: Yeah, something that we are working on, which will probably take another six to 12 months, I think, to really go live with something like that, is the way I see mortgage tech, Scott, is that most of the work that has been done in mortgage technology has been on point of sale over the last five years. So people who had to walk to a bank to hand over documents or do their application on phone, all of that has gone away in most cases. You can all do online, you can upload your documents. And that's point of sale automation, which has happened with practically every single lender, what they're solved. The problem is that the point of sale only helps on day one. If it's a 30 day process day one, the borrower comes to you, fills the application, uploads the document, their experience is driven by what happens in the back end between day two and day 30. And that's why overall mortgage closing time has not budged in the last decade or two is because That day two to day 30 process has remained almost exactly the same over the last couple of decades. That's the automation part that even though super ambitious, that's something that I'm personally very, very focused on over, we started doing it almost 12 months back, and I think it's another six to 12 months process but we really want to automate 50 to 70% of that day two to day 30 process. And because I was telling you in the beginning before we started recording that for Insta, it's really important that we have the predictable, the transparent and the fast process And all of that cannot happen. If you just automate point of sale is because that's just 5% of the entire process. So what we are focused on is less glamorous, non-sexy, processing, underwriting, closing, funding. I mean, it does not sound something which looks cool and the boards don't. Get I think it's it. kind
1: of sexy, but like, I'm kind of a mortgage nerd. So, but most people will be like, yeah, you're right, Scott, that's who cares. Yeah. And and yeah. boards don't get to see that. So they're like, no. okay, this is all in the back end. I don't know what we, you- They don't care. Thinking.
0: Yeah. Yeah. But I think that has been our biggest, I would say P1 over last year. And that's something that will stay to be our P1 because it's a very long, very ambitious project.
1: And back to your point, you talked at the beginning, the reason you, you have a bank, is that correct? Or what are are you guys structured? So is you can control the end to end process instead of getting to, Hey, now we fire it off to their system and trying to interact with their system and their people and their standard, you know, how long they're going to get back to you. And so it makes sense why you have thought about this. It has to be end-to-end integration. So what did you guys do in production last year? You don't know me asking, like instant mortgage.
0: We did about $1.2 billion.
1: 1.2. And how many loan officers or how many like producers would that be?
0: Last year, we were lower. We have actually increased the count significantly this year. We are at about 55 loan officers, 60 actually as of this morning. Last year, we were probably about 25, 30 people in the loan officer count. So we have been pretty aggressive in terms of bringing new loan officers. to and,
1: and the loan officers you guys provide, like these are producing loan officers that are joining you because they like your technology, they like your vision, they like your culture, or are they coming? Because some companies there's more like a, it's like a job you show up and they, what do you guys have?
0: No, we are all about entrepreneurship. We are about people who take charge, people who take initiative, but then we do everything for them. We have created an entire training platform called MLO Masterclass, which learns from, say, over a decade of my own learning in terms of how to build businesses from scratch to, say, $300 million a year. There are a lot of coaching on that. There is a ton of coaching from some of the biggest originators, coaches, and trainers within the industry. So we have created one of its kind, really, training platform for our loan officers who come and join us on top of regular training, mentorship, and coaching that we do plus everything else that we talked about in terms of technology and ops, which runs at 30 to 60% faster than the industry average in terms of closing loans. We are looking for people who do not need too much help in terms of getting off the ground. They already have a solid book of business, but they can take that and double it by spending the same amount of time. um, Right. increase
1: better efficiencies, better tools you guys are developing. Is there anything else? So you got Rachel, the AI, the digital human. You've got this day two to day 30, let's call it. That's just the back-end process. Is there anything else that you're working on that you think is a a big problem that needs to be solved? Yeah, so it's not a technology problem. The two ways that I look
0: at Insta Mortgage is that on one side, we are, say, a tech-forward mortgage company. On the other side, we are deeply committed to minority home ownership. That's something that is huge on our agenda, probably the number one thing from a priority perspective from client acquisition is that we understand the systemic inequities that has existed in the industry for decades. If you look at black homeownership, for example, there was actually a higher homeownership percentage in the 1960s than 2020s. I mean, believe it or not, in the last 50, 60 years, their homeownership percentage has actually gone down instead of going up. Mm -hmm. Um, And you see similar kind of challenges within other minorities. And when I say minorities, I, of course, mean people of color, but I also mean, say, females as a demographic. And that's something which has been a big focus for us. I personally write a lot within industry publications about the opportunity. So not just that this is good for community as a mortgage industry, but also it's good for the industry itself. If you look at the next 20 years projections, 100% of new homeownership growth will come from people of color. So if you are somebody who's running a mortgage lending company, I mean, that's the future. That's where you need to be. You need to be working with single females. You need to be working with people of color. And that's something that we are very focused on. I, in fact, just took over the position of being the podcast host for California Mortgage Bankers Association DE&I podcast. Again, I mean, I'm not getting paid or anything to do that. It's just so that we can get a bigger platform to talk about that cause, because that's something that we are deeply committed to.
1: No, that's amazing. I love the vision. What's a practical thing that somebody listening to this could do to like, because it seems like a, well, not a big thing, but like How do you make it real or tangible? Like what's something that you could do that anybody listening could be like, oh, I could make this, I'm curious.
0: Yeah, so we do a few things here. But one thing that is probably the easiest is that your team needs to look like the communities it serves, period. If you serve a primarily, say a white community, nothing wrong with your team looking like them. But if you serve a community where say 50% are Hispanic or Latinos or black or whatever it is, it's proven psychologically is that people approach people that they look similar to in terms of especially when it comes to first-time home buying there's a lot of barriers there's a lot Mm -hmm. of preconceived notions and they don't feel comfortable talking about that unless they see a person which looks like them which talks like them so for us that was the first step in terms of hiring itself is that we wanted to hire loan officers we wanted to hire processors wanted to hire underwriters so not just the sales side of it, because you can go and get business and then bring it to processing. And they don't understand that culture. They don't understand the ethnicity. I was uh, mm-hmm. I was at an award reception last evening, and so a gentleman asked me the same question. And I told them, look, something as simple as you have a Hispanic client, and they are buying a two-bedroom home, and four people are going to live there. Most underwriters would think there is some kind of fraud that's going on. Is that how do four families live in, say, two-bedroom house? right. But that's a culture thing. If you're part of that culture, either as a processor or an underwriter, you will understand that probably it's common for that. I mean, I used to do a lot of business within the Indian demographic and they used to get a lot of gift funds from their parents in India. And then people would not understand how does the international wire transfers work? Is this all legit? Are their parents actually yeah, exactly all this money? Yeah. So understanding the culture from where these borrowers are coming from is really critical. And I would say that's probably the biggest thing we have focused on other than driving the culture of d within the company
1: itself. Right. A friend of mine who's uh, Indian descent, and he's a banker, and he owned like five properties, he still lived with his parents, he was like in his late 20s, he got married. And yeah. then when he was getting married, his mom's like, you got to move out. And he's like, what do you mean I got to move out? Like, he's <laughs> like, you don't do this. He's like, you become too, you know, Canadian. He's like, you don't <laughs> kick, even though it wasn't a financial thing. It was like, yes. no, like, that's not what we do. Yeah. And uh, so he bought a house across the street because he was like, okay, <laughs> I'm, if I'm going to move out, I'm going to, you know, because yeah. like you said, there's cultural differences there. Yes. And I think that there's a lot of strength of some of those differences in how they're collaborative, how there's like the family element. Whereas I feel like, you know, I'm going to speak in general terms here, but like in the white Canadian, probably American too, is that everybody wants their own room. They want yeah. their own space. They need their own like, and that's not the way it is in a lot of the world. And so we have this sort of, you're right, we bring that lens to our underwriting, to our Yes, And so it was interesting that he told me that. And I was like, oh, that's funny, man. Like that you're, he, and he was, he was mad. He's like, I can't believe she's making me move out. Like just because I'm getting <laughs> married. So what? Like, <laughs> but uh, okay, that's cool. So where can people find you? Like you've got some podcasts you do, you write, like you're all over the place, man. So where can people find you online if they're wanted to look you up?
0: Yeah, it really depends on who they are. If you're within the mortgage community, mortgageblog.com is where I blog. Instamortgage.com is of course my company website. But people who are generally just interested in prop tech, fintech, space, and entrepreneurship, Shashank Redemption is my podcast on Apple and Spotify, and probably that's the best platform. Of course, connect with me on social media if you'd like to.
1: Right, and if you're listening to Shashank and you're like, "Man, this guy sounds like somebody I would like to maybe go work for," reach out somehow. However, you can find you, and somebody in your you know team will I'm sure talk to them yes. if you're, uh yes. if that makes sense to you. One of the things I think is going to happen in this current new refinance that's going down is there's going to be a lot of migration happening. People are going to be looking at their business going, okay, I'm here. Why am I here? What's the value prop? Like when deals are falling in your lap, files are falling in your lap, people are like, who cares? But now I think there's going to be a lot of people looking around going, where do I want to be? Where do I want to be part of? And I think what you're doing is pretty cool. So, you know, hat tip to you and your success and amazing. So I want to end on this seven mortgages in your first year. (laughs) <laughs> right like literally like new yes. no three people in canada and 1.2 billion last year like man that's impressive like seriously very impressive to what you've done and you did it in your own way you didn't like yeah. follow another you know somebody else's way to do it so congrats to you man and i hope you can continue to success thanks scott Hey, thanks again for listening to that conversation i hope you got it as much of it as i did i love talking to smart people that expand my thinking i loved his whole day two day 30 concept or thinking about that i loved how he talked about help a reporter out get media attention and i loved how he said focus on the message not the tools and i just thought for me this was a great conversation smart guy if you are a mortgage broker who wants to scale and get your business going faster, one of the things i found is that you actually get someone to show you how to do what they know how to do. If you go to 10 Loans a Month Academy, 10loansamonth.com, that's the number 10 loans a month. We have an academy with some amazing coaches who can teach you their superpower, and we only open it a few times a year. Go get on the wait list, and maybe we'll see you in the academy. In this upcoming segment, I talk to Ben about patterns of reverse mortgages. Hey, Ben. Welcome to the show. Hey, Scott. Hey, so you know, we were chatting about this offline, but one of the things I used to do when I was actively mortgage brokering is I'd reach out to BDMs and I'd say, what kind of product are you seeing a lot of people selling? And then by seeing that product, I would reverse engineer, okay, what's going on here? And so you've seen some patterns lately in the reverse mortgages that mortgage brokers are bringing to you. So why don't you tell me about the pattern that you're noticing and then why that is, why that's happening?
2: Yeah. So we're seeing a lot of customers over the last couple of months. We've seen a lot of deals come in where clients are basically at the tail end of, you know, call it a five-year traditional mortgage term. And the brokers are coming in, bringing deals and refinancing them out of that traditional mortgage and into a reverse. And there's a few drivers of why that's happening. And so I figured we could just touch on some of those drivers.
1: Yeah, sure. That's great. So basically you've got somebody up for renewal or they want to refinance. And so,
2: Kate, tell me, but what are the main reasons people you think are doing this? Yeah. So, I mean, the number one reason by far is what we call like change of circumstance. Right, so if you're dealing with borrowers, you know, as we do, that are kind of in their mid '60s, late '60s, right around that retirement age, like for a lot of people, they got their last renewal on that mortgage while they were still, you know, working, right, while they were still earning an income. So they got into that traditional mortgage because that was, you know, easy for them to service while they were earning all that employment income. They've since retired or they're about to retire. And that's a significant change of circumstance, right? They're going to move from employment income to fixed income, fixed retirement income, and, you know, removing, you know, that sort of big monthly payment that's associated with that traditional mortgage and refinancing into a payment-free reverse mortgage is a great, you know, solution for people in that stage of life.
1: Right. Okay. It's so a change of circumstance. Any other reasons that you see that uptick in refinancing to reverse mortgages? Yeah.
2: Yeah. So change in rate, I think obviously with what's happening in the market, inflation and where mortgage rates seem to be going, as rates go up, people are basically, you know, refinancing into a reverse. Because frankly, a lot of seniors live right on the margin, right? They do a very good job of balancing, you know, their cash inflows and their cash outflows, but they're not accumulating savings at that stage of life. Right. So as soon as you add, you know, some significant expense to the equation, like a rise in interest rate, a rise in debt service payments, that could tilt them into the red. Right. So as interest rates go up removing that sort of debt service requirement, moving that kind of increase in debt service from rising interest rates is a significant driver of refinancing into a payment-free reverse.
1: Right. Yeah. That makes a lot of sense actually. So you got to change in circumstance. You got to change in rates, which yeah, I would say our seniors, no offense to younger people, are much better at managing their money than most younger people. At least I feel that way. Like they've had to like Definitely. get really good at it. So but they can't control rates just like we can. So yeah. Uh, and the other thing they up, can't control
2: yeah. is cost of living, right? And the cost right. of the goods that they need to buy, the cost of gas, the cost of groceries, all of which are going up right now, right? With inflation. I think the last day looked inflation's at 5.7%, which is really high. And it doesn't look like it's gonna slow down anytime soon, right? So again, people that are living on a fixed income, that fixed income is not gonna re-index fast enough, you know, for them to be able to manage, you know, those increase in those day-to-day costs of living. You know, what is a reverse mortgage at its core is it's basically a tool for older people to, you know, increase their purchasing power in retirement, right? We have lots of customers that are coming to us as they kind of see the writing on the wall of where, you know, their cost of living are going to go. They see, you know, their home and the equity in their home as basically a bank account to help service, you know, those rising costs. Right.
1: Okay. A couple of thoughts on this. So first, when you talk about the retiring, according to a study I read on Forbes, it was saying that when COVID hit, 30 million boomers retired which is crazy, which is kind of leading into this. In between, they had a five-year mortgage, maybe 2018, now they're coming up. And 30 million is not just in Canada, of course, because that's like pretty much our whole population. This is a US stat. And the other thing that they had done is they've done surveys and 75% of seniors today are planning on to retire early. So you've got more people kind of retiring, either retired or retiring early. So that's gonna change the circumstance. Rates, obviously, we've already seen are going up. The one thing I think about when it comes to inflation is that fuel is my concern when it comes to inflation because everything is affected by fuel. Everything we eat, consume, use is made somewhere else and is brought to us. So if you have rising fuel costs, it's got to affect the cost of everything. Like that's got to be like the underlying – like how many people are on a 100-mile diet? Like I'm not. Like you know I'm eating – Blueberries from South America, you know, in yeah. my cereal. Like it is pretty crazy the way that we live and we just take it for granted. You know, we walk into Costco and we buy something from South America and it's five bucks. It's like, how is it even possible when you think about just the infrastructure required to make that happen? Sorry, I go on a tangent. So change in circumstances, one of the reasons you're seeing this pattern of refinancing to reverse mortgages. And in particular, this is with some of the bigger producer, the guys, the brokers that are doing a lot of reverse mortgages. And I always like to see what the smart people are doing. There's change in circumstance change in rates, and then the change in cost of living. Any kind of last thoughts on this?
2: Yeah, so those are three of the biggest drivers as to why we're seeing people refinance, you know, into reverse from a traditional mortgage, you know, a change in circumstance, change in rate, change in cost of living. There's certainly other drivers. I think we can chat about some of those other drivers in another segment, Scott. But really, as a broker, like if you have, you know, older customers that are coming up for renewal on those, you know, fixed rate traditional mortgages, I think, you know, give some good long, hard thought as to what the right mortgage is for them. You know if some of those things that you know have changed you know in the client's you know situation, you know, potentially reply into a reverse of the right call. Can make a lot of sense. Right. And if you guys are listening to this and you want to
1: check out Ben and his team at Bloom Finance, go to Bloomfin.ca. They got a fantastic team that can help you put these together, help your clients out, and create a great experience for everybody. Thanks, Ben, for chatting with me. Thanks, Scott. All right, thanks again for listening to my conversation with shashank and ben hopefully you got some nuggets that you can apply to your mortgage business if you are wanting a really easy way to improve your business go to islandmortgagebrokering.com set up a free power search account and you can keyword search all of our past episodes there's 400 plus of them in there now and literally take you right to the moment if you want to look up purple elephant i just said purple elephant it would literally take you right to this episode it will show you where i said purple elephant And so anywhere in between any keyword you can think of that you want to do, it's the most powerful research you can do tapping into some of the smartest, brightest mortgage producers on the planet. Go check it out. It's totally free. And thanks again for listening to this episode.
2: This is an I Love Mortgage Brokering production.